Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Supermersive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Outre-Terre. It is not intended for children. Rocco's Diner on High Street wasn't particularly clean, nor was the food very good. The upholstery on the booths was patchy and peeling, and while it was hard to tell during the day, was pretty sure that one of the letters on the neon sign out front didn't work. No one comes here for an Instagram post. I know that some of the guys figured out how to obscure their faces in photographs, but I'm not looking to mess up a representation of my soul. For the record, the natives who feared photographs would steal their soul were right. It's just recoverable. The darkness from the storm clouds above the restaurant transported me back to the 1950s. I know that behind me are several very probable drug users and not men in suits. Nighthawks, all. The jerks were set in traps with the salt cellar and pepper shakers so they'd spill open when used. They squirted ketchup on the placemats and ripped out a menu. Well, they ran off without paying. Didn't even have the decency to turn into ghosts or face through walls. I didn't offer my services to the poor waitress. Despite their flight, Rocco's was cheap, and that made a suitable spot for a quick bite to eat. You keep your expectations low in Shipton. It's just that the line before food poisoning becomes a promise. Sitting across from me at the diner was my friend Phil in his famous red and checkered lumberjack shirt. It had been less than an hour since I'd had to fight for my life against a mean werewolf and a crazed shooter, but I didn't have time to think about it. Detectives have to be cool, you know? The police would have come sniffing around, asking questions soon, but I don't trust the police in Shipton. So when Phil finally met me, ten minutes late... Had it really only been ten minutes? Well, I suggested we split and meet at a local diner. Phil suggested Rocco's, and here we were. Phil was my informant in the Shipton Werewolf Mafia. A few months ago, we'd met on the case, and Phil had been tasked to kill me. It was about three months after I started working apart from old Tom. During the attack by the cannibalistic weed farmers and the Pine Barrens, I managed to convince Paul that there were paths available to him besides the Shipton Wolves, and he saved my life. Now he was my informant in the organization, though unfortunately his information was kind of limited. There's only so high you could go if you're not willing to commit more... shall we say unsavory acts? Still, Phil was my guy, and the truth was, I liked the man. He was friendly, had a sense of humor, and you could just tell the guy was trying hard to turn his life around. And I, of all people, could respect that. That's why I was so surprised he'd showed up late to our meeting. Phil was supposed to be there at 9am, but he hadn't shown up until after the entire encounter with the werewolf and shooter ended. I found that strange. Suspicious, even. He said something about oversleeping. I just wish he respected me enough for a decent lie. I made a joke about long nights, and he didn't laugh. I always make the same joke. He always used to laugh. You alright, pal? You haven't said much. Is there something happening? We were the only people in the restaurant. 
It was a rainy weekday, after all, off lunch hour, and, well, plague and worse, shipped in. But the lone waitress behind the counter was chatting with the cook and still hadn't gotten our orders. Phil finally looked at me. You want to know if I'm all right? I should be asking you that, Sean. Jesus, I can't believe you're alive right now after that mess in the warehouse. I thought back to it and shivered involuntarily. You get used to it, but it's mostly self-denial. I don't know what Jack or Jim think about things when they look back. You just can't think about it. <sighs> Neither can I. I'm going to have a few sleepless nights after that one. But forget that for a moment. Do you know who Paul DuPont is? Before he could answer, the waitress showed up. She was slightly overweight and middle-aged, with red hair piled on top of her head and a perpetual scowl on her face. She scribbled my coffee and pancakes order onto her notepad without looking up, while Paul ordered an orange juice, then slouched off to the kitchen, staking her sweet time. Nice girl, I said casually. Anyway, Paul DuPont. You know him? Something had happened. He was off. His bulldog face kept up a worse frown than usual from meeting to now. What's more, the big man ordered a suspiciously small amount of bacon. Sounds like a joke, but for werewolves, it's only funny until you've met them. I tried to figure out what was on his mind. Phil took a sip of his complimentary water. There were three ice cubes in it, and they were already nearly melted. Paul. Oh yeah, I know Paul. Not well, though. He's trying to make a power play in the organization right now, getting some followers behind him. Violent, but a go-getter, and not a total idiot like some of them. Why? What about him? Paul was the werewolf I fought in the warehouse. And how do you know that? Once again, something about Phil seemed a little off to me. He was answering my questions, showing concern, but normally he'd be a lot more animated about learning something like this. I didn't know how to bring it up tactfully and decided to forge ahead. He told me, after the fight, seemed to think he owed me for saving his life. I getcha. Paul is a scumbag like the rest of them, but he's the sort of scumbag who inspires loyalty, so you'll get moments like that with him. So what did he say? I looked around us carefully, then leaned in and whispered. He tells me it's mind control. Random civilians just attacking the werewolves in the street. Breaking the rules. Mean anything to you? Just then the waitress showed up. She didn't have my pancakes, but she did have our burnt and slightly stale toast, which she threw down onto the table from so high up, they nearly fell off the plate. Five more minutes, she said without looking at me, then marched away again. I took a glum bite of the toast. Somehow it fit the mood. Phil, too, chewed slowly. He answered me very carefully. Does the name Blood Money mean anything to you? I thought it over and remembered a history lesson from Old Tom. Blood Money, the vampire? I thought Old Tom killed him in the 80s. There hasn't been hide nor hair of him in decades. Yeah, well, he was dead in the 80s, too. He's the rumor, pal. He's the guy behind this new mind control. It's starting to panic some of the top men in the organization. Blood money was serious business back in the day. Real serious. Phil's language was casual, but he looked and sounded grim. I forced down my rubbery toast before I spoke again. Well, I'm prepared for vampires. They're a type of undead, so Christian symbols work well. 
you know if the wolves are prepping a response? Phil, though, was staring at his phone. He got up abruptly. Sorry, pal, gotta take a leak. I'll be back in a sec, hold on. And just like that, he was off to the bathroom and I was alone with my thoughts. I tried to remember what old Tom had told me about blood money. The truth is, he wouldn't tell me much about him. It was a serious thing for him, the sort of narrative that makes or breaks a paranormal Pinkerton. I didn't know what he sounded like or looked like or the details of his operations. I don't think Tom liked talking about blood money. According to him, he was the single hardest opponent he'd ever faced. Blood money had the usual vampiric powers, it was true, limited immortality and mind control. But what made him such a hard out was that blood money was unbelievably well prepared. He had backups for backup schemes that stretched back miles and he pulled all the strings like an omnipotent puppet master. You'd bury one of his minions, stake and hearth, and find an empty grave when you dig them up to check. When I asked Tom how he took him down, he only ever said he got lucky. Blood money alive? Was it even possible? Tom had assured me he was dead, but he never explained what happened. Could someone else be using the name? But why decades later? I noted down some things. I might have to go see old Tom sooner than later. The waitress walked over again before Phil came back. I was lost in thought and didn't notice at first. It was the pressure that got me, like a fly buzzing around. Really, you've never heard a fly's wing several feet away, but you wave at it all the same. She didn't say anything. I played up my reaction. Too many things weren't adding up. Yikes, I didn't even see you there. My pancakes ready yet? The waitress didn't speak. And come to think of it, why was she at her table but not holding anything either? My water was empty, and that starts to affect the tip. My left hand was on the table near to the butter knife, and my right hand inched to the gun I was keeping in the holster at my waist. A bus pulled up across the street, several people inside. My hand relaxed. My alarm bells were really ringing now, and I looked more closely. Suzanne's, if the name tag is to be believed, eyes were rolled into the back of her head, and her face was pale. Too pale. She spoke, and her voice sounded raspier than earlier. Pan cup of pancakes aren't ready yet, darling. Anything else I can get you? She twitched as she spoke. Skittle started to slowly drip down her neck. Twitch was sudden and violent, and if she hadn't immediately went calm after it, I'd have thought it was a grand mal seizure. With sudden jerky motion, she put her hand on the table, one wrist on her hip near pen and pad, and said, Anything else I can get you, get thing food? Total nonsense. I slipped by as casually as I could. Well, change my mind, actually. I'll just be going. You can tell my friend to meet me outside. Without paying? With unnatural speed, Suzanne stabbed at me with her pen. I fell backward, rolling over the chair into the next booth's table. That's dining and dashing. You need to pay! Her eyes rolled forward, twisting twice, the pupils passing by like a video projector being turned off. Blood dripped down her cheeks and veins grew within the pale eyes as I watched. Fangs sprouted from the front of her mouth, popping up like memorial towers in a graveyard. She howled as she leapt at me. It didn't take a paranormal Pinkerton detective to see that this was a vampire. Fresh! But a vampire. 
I clutched at the crucifix I always wore around my neck as I scrambled to my feet. I was backing away from the crazed, violent waitress who was moving faster than should have been possible. I grabbed one of the salt shakers from an empty table and flung it at her. She screamed and clutched at her eyes, still fresh enough to feel pain. I sprinted back towards the kitchens. The crucifix should keep her from touching me, but it didn't keep a weapon from hitting me, and she was blocking the way to the front door. I sprinted my way through to the emergency exit in the back. With luck, I can find a spot to stake her without any passerbys to see. The waitress wasn't moving right. She had clearly just been turned and wasn't used to having all of this new speed and strength, which I can use to my advantage. She moved at moments with shocking speed and power, but she also kept lurching and hitting objects in the restaurant and kitchens. She'd leap for me, but I'd duck and she'd hit the pots and pans. A little experience with the body and she wouldn't make those mistakes. Blood Money should write a vampire teen book, My Body and Me, Vampirism and Self-Image. I bet you it would sell in Shipton. This wasn't the time for a hero moment. I needed something quick and dirty. I made it to the emergency exit in the back, grabbing a frying pan from the stove on the way out. The dirty hunk of metal hadn't been cleaned in a literal forever, but enough of the, uh, burning cold iron was visible under the grease. Outside, it was still drizzling, but two overweight cooks with stained aprons smoked fat in unctuous rolls. I didn't judge. I knew what addiction did to you, but I needed them gone now and drew my gun. Get out! Now! Away from the building! Go! The cooks didn't wait around. Maybe Shipton had them primed for these sorts of situations. They sprinted down that back alley the diner was situated in, and I knew this put me under a time limit. Second they were around the corner, the cops would be called. Even given the handicap of being shipped in cops, not a lot of time. Mentally, I started the clock. Gunfire at the warehouses was probably big news. I might have a little more time than the few minutes of any other city. I weighed outside the door, frying pan in hand. Sure enough, Suzanne burst her way through. I didn't hold back. With as much force as I could muster, I caved her damn head in with the still-hot frying pan. She went down like a sack of flour, out cold. Even vampires are affected by blunt force trauma. Sean! What happened? Phil was standing in the doorway. He stepped out and gasped and moved to come closer. Don't take another step, Phil. He crossed on the step of the doorway. My tone must have been very convincing. I had taken a few steps back from Suzanne in the exit of the restaurant and was facing Phil down. Phil stared at me. What's up, pal? Don't even try me today, Phil. So far this morning, I've been attacked by a werewolf, a mind-controlled maniac with a gun, and a vampire who served me stale toast and never did get me my pancakes. Terrible customer service. I'm not in the mood. It was you, wasn't it? Phil made to take a step towards me, but I put my hand on my pocketed gun and he paused again. Sean, you've had a bad morning. You know me. I'm not trying to kill you. Oh, sure, Phil. I thought I knew you. But really, who else could it be? What else makes sense? Who locked the door of warehouse number three, sticking me in that kill box with the werewolf and the shooter? It had to be you. You were the only one who knew I was there. How come that waitress didn't do anything until you left the picture? Because you turned her. Phil narrowed his eyes at me. He dropped a false smile. All right, Sean, say you're right. Why haven't I tried to kill you myself? I'm a werewolf, after all, and a vampire, too, if you're right. Ah, uh, well, that's clever part of it. Why get your claws dirty? 
You had to take it slow, not take any risks. In case it failed, you couldn't blow your cover. Besides, what could happen to you if I died in a vampire attack, unrelated werewolf boss, or shot by a mind-controlled puppet? It's not like I don't have friends in the paranormal Pinkertons. You underestimated me. I am a detective, after all. Phil stared. And now what, Sean? What are you going to do now? I kept my hand tense. That depends on you. My guess? You're a pawn for blood money. I don't know what happened. Are you being controlled? Are you working for him? Are you yourself? I guess it doesn't matter, because the truth is, now that I know who you are, you have no choice but to make your play right now. You aren't stupid, Phil. The hand in your right pocket is on the trigger right now. You gonna try to shoot first? You must be hungry after that lousy breakfast. His right hand twitched. He could make out the imprint of his holster through his rain-wet pants. Phil smiled. The smile had no joy in it. You don't understand, Sean. You never will. But you got that right. I'm gonna try to shoot first. And we stared each other down, neither one wanting to move first and would be the first to take the shot. It was classic when I realized something. You're a werewolf. Phil looked confused. You got that right, and you have silver bullets. So? But you're also a vampire. And if I am, they don't contradict each other. I took my left hand and pulled out the crucifix around my neck. Just this. And I saw it. My moment. At the sight of the crucifix, Phil flinched, his right hand rising up in an automatic reflex. And it was enough. I drew my gun and took the shot. Three bullets square in the chest. Even with the lead, Phil had the reflexes to draw on me. His gun went off, but too late. He was down. I exhaled a breath I hadn't even realized I'd been holding and walked over to Phil, bleeding out on the ground. He wasn't quite dead. He's had double the powers, maybe, but certainly double the weaknesses. I'm sorry, Phil. I hope you weren't geosed. I didn't want to kill you, but you didn't give me a choice. Why, though? Why did you do it? After everything that happened, why join up with blood money? Why try to kill me? Was it money? Power? Against your will? Phil started mumbling, and I had to lean in to hear him. It wasn't money. It was never the money. It was never. Those were Phil's last words as the light faded out of him. I heard the sirens in the distance, and I knew I had to scram. The gunshots made them hot under their blue collars. I said a prayer for my friend Phil and turned away in grief. The rain felt more bitter and biting than ever as I walked toward Father O'Malley's church on East Sycamore Street. I dragged Suzanne with me. The fledgling vampire couldn't have weighed more than 80 pounds. Father O'Malley keeps an open back door for men in my profession if you know where to look. Between here and places that require, shall we say, better eyes than mine? Well, that's all I have for now on this crummy case. Father O'Malley has promised to keep an eye out for more vampires. And I watch the papers every day. But the truth is, all of my leads have dried up. I'm sure this isn't the end of my time in Shipton as much as I want it to be. But it's a dead end for now. One last thing. I've been searching for Phil's obituary in the papers. Nothing. 
No memorial service, barely even a mention of gunshots. But he's definitely dead. I saw it myself. I killed him. Guess I gotta live with that. Nothing else to say, but... Listen. Phil was a good man and a good friend. He lived a hard life. I don't know what happened to him, but I promise you this. If I ever do find blood money, I'm going to put a stop to him. Because I'm a paranormal Pinkerton detective, sure. But mostly because he made me kill my friend Phil. And that has to mean something. Phil means something, even after all of that. I don't know. Sean Russo, signing off for now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Anthony Marchetta. Ben Wheeler edits, directs, produces, and herds cats. Ken Dickinson is our sound editor, audio editor. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on superversivesf.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, or email us at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>